Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great and the end of your summer went well as we've just passed into fall, which is another great season and I hope it treats you well. So this episode is going to be a little different than normal and then I'm going to try to go a little deeper into some of the kind of core operational aspects of liberalism and outline some what I will claim here are some testable hypotheses that demonstrate why liberalism is a superior moral and political philosophy to conservatism and other reactionary political ideals. But before I get into this, I want to take on directly some of the white nationalist rhetoric that we're hearing more and more on the right, and it's making its way into some pretty more and more mainstream right-wing circles. Of course, the useful idiots on Fox News are, are trumpeting this stuff, and but it's also in other outlets as well. And it's a very dangerous ideology, and it's kind of the opposite of science. So I want to kind of debunk this first, and then we'll get into the, the more affirmative stuff for liberalism. So in order to try to legitimize white supremacy, the right is employing a, a new deceptive trick to make it appear as if they are just trying to defend the nation and prom promote national unity. Now, you might find that funny, and in some ways it is, that the most divisive and bigoted and racist groups are trying to promote national unity, but it's under the guise of white supremacy. And so their argument is, is that they say there's historical evidence that national strength is promoted by a shared sense of ethnic unity. And that's why they're against you know, all these brown people coming in and keeping it, you know, more of a white country. It's because they, they fear that America will break down if it becomes too diverse and loses this sense of ethnic solidarity. If more, you know, non-white people come in, we're going to go into decline because people are not going to feel connected and they're not going to be invested in the national project. Now, certainly there is a tiny bit of a grain of truth to this but not in the way the right wing thinks, right? The right wing has been promoting an opposition to social welfare programs forever with the, well, you don't want to give any of your tax money to those people. And of course, those people is code for non-white people. And so a lot of the social welfare programs that have been promoted in the United States have been weakened or each actually blocked because people on the right have used kind of racist dog whistles to convince people that even though they might support such a project, uh, if they're you know if some of their tax money is going to go to to those brown people over there, they should oppose it. So th so this is of course part of the irony here. It's the right wing that has been using racial division to you know okay, to gut the social welfare state and serve the interests of the plutocracy. And now they're saying we actually got to keep America white because we're not going to have national unity if we don't. So, of course, this is one of the oldest tricks in the book. 
And of course, like almost everything that the right wing peddles, it is completely and absolutely historically false. So let's kind of just go through a couple quick points here. First, think about how many horrible conflicts in the world and wars that have been waged have been among similar ethnic groups. The most obvious is our civil war, right, in which white people fought white people, many times pitting family members against family members. And this was the most bloody war in our nation's history. But you don't have to look just at the American Civil War. Look at the European wars that pitted different types of white people against each other. Look at all the religious wars over centuries in which, again, even people within the same ethnicity and the same kind of white heritage fought each other over different interpretations of religion. Look at the Korean War that literally split apart in, in a bloody war an essentially homogenous ethnic group. So historically, the notion that if, you know, if you're all ethnically similar, you're not going to fight is just belied by all the evidence. You can even look to kind of pre-European civilizations and look at indigenous groups around, you know, the, the ancient world. And they had no problem uh, fighting each other, you know, in pretty brutal ways, even if they were ethnically uh, quite similar. So what is it then that actually unifies a nation? It is not ethnicity, but it is a shared sense of values. Shared values are the glue that keeps nations together. Relatively homogenous ethnic groups can be split apart if they have different values. And people who don't look like each other but who have the same values can actually exist and, and cooperate and, and live in peace. So, you know, think about, again, the Civil War. Though This white ethnic group was essentially, uh, you know, it was not homogenous. But the, the, the big thing that tore the country apart was the idea of some people believing that human bondage was okay and others that did not. It was, it was the different values, not different color of the skin or ethnic makeup. Also important to remember that who is considered white has changed over the centuries. So the Ku Klux Klan back in the 1920s, they warned against the rise of Catholicism, right? And so the big boogeyman in the 1920s was the Catholics were coming. Now the, far most, the five most far-right members of the Supreme Court that the right-wing loves are all Catholic, right? Irish, Italian, German immigrants were all considered others at various points in our history, and now they're dominant blocks of modern white identity. So the key thing here is that ethnicity is fluid, and it is absolutely not a sufficient condition to promote national solidarity. There are just, the history is littered with example of ethnic groups that look uh, very similar and share similar, similar heritage, but fight bloody wars and bloody battles uh, because of different ideas of how to operate society. So again, it's shared values uh, that keep a nation together. And if we think about that in the modern context, immigrants from Latin America uh, share U.S. values. They share Western values. They share the desire to live in liberal, free, open societies. They're hardworking. They believe in the kind of essentially the Protestant work ethic that is part of the American culture. Uh, many of them are Christian and share kind of Western religion. And so they are not threats. They can be easily assimilated into our society and share our values and become productive members of society. So it's not the fact that they're brown and speak Spanish that uh, makes them a threat 
to the right. It's the fact that the right just is racist and wants white supremacy. So uh, anyway, we will uh, we will move on after the break here to these kind of more elements of liberalism that I want to discuss that I think can be thought of in a more kind of scientific, objective manner. Some will come and speak in, in parables Trying to tell you how things is gonna get terrible Like you know no long time And they don't know where it's at Some will think it's their heart but it's their mind I've seen this happen Time of the Okay, so on to the discussion of liberalism here. I want to start meta here for a second and talk about what it means to be human. This is obviously a deep question, a profound question, and I don't have the full answer to this, of course. But one thing to kind of come back on is, is something that I talked about a few episodes back, which is this fact that we are just a type of animal. We are a strand of animal. There is the, the, the binary distinction, human-animal is false. We are just part of this web. And we are different, though. We clearly have a much greater ability to create tools, to shape our reality, uh, to tell stories, to envision and be creative. And I'd say above all, the real meta here is that humans have the ability to know reality, to understand objective reality and truth in ways that other animals do not. And so what do I mean by this? Well, no matter how smart a chimpanzee or a dolphin or a whale or a lion is, they're never going to know about DNA. They're never going to know about galaxies and black holes. They're never going to know about the Big Bang. Right? They are somehow trapped in a much narrower view of reality. They might have some historical gene- you know, genetic memory of some of their ancestors. They might have some sense of changing environmental conditions. But they don't have anywhere near the scope of really getting into the detail of the building blocks of reality and the history of the universe and where the universe is going. That is really, we are unique and alone, at least on planet Earth, in terms of that knowledge. And that's incredibly powerful, right? That means we can really have the opportunity to know the truth about who we are, the things that we do, their impacts, the things we put in our bodies, the types of societies we create. We can analyze them and know the truth about them in ways that other animals cannot. And this is obviously quite, quite deep. Uh, we Do we know everything and have the opportunity to know everything about you know the creation of the universe and all potential reality that exists? Probably not, and certainly not at this point. But we, more than any other animals, really can get pretty deep. And especially in this day and age with the, the information revolution, we are way, way more advanced on this dimension. And so, with that, we can investigate very clearly and in, in detail what the building blocks for a healthy society are, right? So if you can observe reality clearly, objectively, 
you can then see what are the building blocks for building a prosperous, healthy, just society. And let me take a step back and give an example that might highlight why I think liberalism provides the scientific way forward. Imagine if you had uh, a young child, a toddler that was two or three years old, and they were in a an air, you know, in a, a play a playroom, and they had a bunch of blocks, right? And half of those blocks had lessons related to positive things like cooperation, like building strength, like compassion, like sharing. And half of them had other more negative aspects of behavior, racism, competition, violence, aggression. And we made it an opportunity for parents to say, which set of blocks would you like your kid to play with? We would rightly consider any parent who chose that second set of blocks to let their kid play with aggression, violence, competition, uh, over compassion, cooperation, health, we would think they were monsters. Why would you give your kids building blocks that would lead them to a very kind of aggressive, violent position, especially when they're so young and their mind is so clear? Well, but that is what we do in society all the time. And we don't just do it with children. What are the inputs? What are the building blocks in society that we're feeding people's brains, that they're then going out and manifesting in the world. Listen to right-wing media for an hour if you can and count the number of times they talk about aggression, violence, division, greed, and promote those values continually. What type of society do you think they're going to build? It's, It's the same thing with the child, right? We're even as adults, the inputs that we get lead to, you know, our our view of the world versus, you know, a a more liberal type of uh, programming in which people are sharing how to build a good world, how to cooperate, how to be creative, how to be environmentally sustainable. Those are just two sets of inputs. Which one is going to build the healthy society or not? And imagine if you could run this experiment. You could, you know, take different groups of people isolated and give them different sets of these building blocks, different sets of lessons, different sets of positive reinforcement. One in the conservative worldview of hierarchy and violence and ignorance and fables and racism and one in the creative liberal mindset. Which one is going to produce a better society? You could run this scientific experiment thousands and thousands of times. And the liberal one would come out on top over and over again because it's just the same. What the inputs are is the outputs, right? Garbage in, garbage out. The next point I want to talk about is another key liberal principle here is diversity, right? Liberalism says we should have diverse representation in all of our you know, corporations, all of our educational institutions, all of our in our government functions and the right wing fights against this all the time they they hate affirmative action they you know they they want it to be basically meritocracy based on how much money and status you have of course when all that money and status has been gotten through oppressive means and through white supremacy but they're happy to stick with that and they really oppose 
diversity for diversity's sake. But again, let's run a thought experiment here. So let's say we take any problem in American society, whether it's the obesity epidemic, the opioid epidemic, climate change, income inequality, and then ask yourself, if you were to randomly take a group of representative American citizens that represented different ethnic groups, different social and economic classes, different genders, different sexual orientation, and you put them together and charge them with trying to come up with just equitable solutions to these problems, or you took a random sampling of people from one limited group, so let's say white males, you take 100 randomly selected white males, you take 100 randomly selected representative portion of the population, and you put them at work on any one of these big societal problems. And again, run this experiment hundreds of times, thousands of times. Which group is going to come up with better uh, outcomes, better solutions to America's problem? The group of exclusively white men or the representative group uh, across all socioeconomic, ethnic, religious groups? You could run this experiment hundreds, thousands of times, and that diverse group is going to come up with better outcomes because they're going to have more perspectives. They're going to have more empathy. They're going to have more life experience, right? It's not to say that there's no variety in that group of 100 white men, but it's not going to be near enough to get at the level of complexity and nuance to solve the problem. So diversity is a strength. And it is an important ingredient for a liberal uh, democratic society. I want to make one quick side note here, which is if you think about all the major religions of the world, especially the Abrahamic traditions, 100% of their testimonies come from men. All of these religious books in the major world religions have been written and handed down by men throughout history. By definition, they must be incomplete and thereby false. Because if they only come from men, how can that represent the full range of human experience? How can that represent the full range of spiritual experience? How can it represent the full comprehensive way to order a society when it's only exclusively been men forever who have been uh, transmitting this information? They must be definitionally False, because there is no way that excluding half of the population for thousands of years can produce true wisdom. It is just not possible. Think about that scientifically, right? If you just take out half of the population and you know have one, you know, one half, you know, create all the the wisdom tradition, how can that be complete? It's impossible. Okay. So anyway, after the break here. I'll come back uh, and we'll talk about some more moral questions where, again, I think the liberal position is clearly superior.
Okay, so the next topic I want to talk about is how moral questions become much more straightforward when you see reality clearly. So again, if part of what being human, uniquely human, is to see reality, to understand reality, and you see it clearly, my, my point here is then that moral questions become easier. I don't want to say, say they become easy in an absolute sense, but they become easier. So let's start with something uh, obvious, like the Green New Deal. Right? So the Green New Deal, the, the big uh, you know, plan that the Democrats have put forward, or at least a couple of them, to transform the economy and to mitigate climate change. There are many people who say the Green New Deal is insane and you know it's unworkable and all of that. So here, if you see reality clearly, you see that they are wrong. Right. If climate change is real, the science is is accurate, which the overwhelming majority, the high 90s of the world's best scientists are telling is true, then transforming the economy in order to, you know, prevent this huge catastrophe that is in the works is obviously the morally correct answer. Now, how to do it exactly can be worked out. But to just say it's unrealistic or it's crazy or it's socialism is insane. And then let's think about the same people who are, who are making these claims. These are the people who for decades have spent trillions, and I mean trillions of dollars, uh, protecting the, the oil supplies, fighting wars in the Middle East, and propping up the fossil fuel industry. How do these people have any moral standing on the question of what to do about climate change, right? They don't. And so no critique of the Green New Deal can be even a fraction as wrong as the fact of the people who have supported the war machine and the oil industry for the last 30 and 40 years. Let's look at the financial crisis, right? Same thing. The people who destroyed tens of trillions of dollars in wealth and left the lives of hundreds of millions of people devastated in the 2008-9 crisis, their actions were monstrous, and they have no moral position to stand on when those of us here want to rein in the financial industry and try to um, uh, address income inequality, right? So when you, when you understand reality, look at the actions of what people have done, you know what the right side is. It's not ambiguous. It's not difficult. And uh, one thing to add on that is, of course, how to solve the problem, uh, there are legitimate critiques, right? Do we do with the Green New Deal, a cap and trade, a carbon tax? Do we do massive investments in green infrastructure? It's probably some combination that's true, the, you know, the three and, and, and all of this. But the point being here is that the, the, the how is obviously something that you know, we, we can discuss, but the should we do something, the moral foundation of these questions is unambiguous, right? The people who have supported Saudi Arabia for decades, which is probably the most heinous regime in the world with the worst human rights abuses and have put us basically in line with their foreign policy, how do they have any moral standing, right? They just don't, right? Once you see reality clearly, you see that, there are some real clear right and wrong answers here. And I think this is something that the left really needs to wrap its head around here. This kind of the moral relativism, relativism, 
the inability to just say this is right, that is wrong, and then move on uh, has really hampered the left. I'm still amazed by how many people on the left can't even say the Republican Party is evil, right? The Republican Party is a club, right? It's a club. It's people have gotten together and say, hey, we're going to have this club. This is what we believe in. Come and join our club. And this club is just all about lies and racism and voter suppression and plutocracy and destruction of the environment. And yet you can't say that that's an evil ideology. People are so afraid to just take a moral stance. But when you see reality clearly, it's, it's quite easy, right? It, it, it isn't a big leap. One thing I want to end on here is think about the modern context here, right? Where right now in America on Fox News and right-wing radio uh, and right-wing media, uh, white people are being whipped into a frenzy that America is being invaded by people from Latin America, from the caravans of Guatemalan women and brown people. And, you know, they, they say all this stuff about how they're, they're making our country dirty and weak and separating it. Now, of course, we know most of the actual terrorism in America is being committed by far-right white men. So the first thing is, again, science, reality, looking at the amount of death perpetrated by white far-right-wing uh, men is way more than anything coming from the immigrants who are trying to come into our country. But putting that aside, let's think meta here for a second. Who has been doling out terrorism around the world for 400 plus years, right? Which ethnic groups have been the one colonizing, plundering, pillaging? Which ethnic group in America up until the 1960s, up until just 50 plus years ago, was had a reign of terror, you know, that had half of the country practically in cowering and fear under massive threats of violence? Of course, it was white people, right? White people have been doling out terror uh, more than other ethnic groups for the last four centuries. And yet now these white people are being whipped into a frenzy that they need to be scared of a Guatemalan woman coming to pick strawberries. Think about how upside down that is. We've convinced the, the, the ethnic group that has perpetrated the largest amounts of terrorism in the world over the last 400 years that they're the ones that are the victims and need to be worried? Think about Brexit. Most of the people who voted for Brexit in the UK are voting against immigration. Think about the irony here. UK colonized the world for hundreds of years. Remember the saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire. They plundered much of the world and just extracted their natural resources and oppressed so much of the world for hundreds of years and now those people are mad that some of their former colonies want to come and live in their in, in their home country i mean think of how insanely backwards that is right so once you see reality clearly you can just cut through the noise and not all moral questions become clear and evident but most of the big ones really do we don't need the moral relativism we don't need the caution we can get some really clear right and wrong answers um, pretty immediately if you're just willing to look reality in the face and not blink. So with, uh, with that, I'll come back after the break with uh, the last couple points.
Okay, so to kind of wrap up here before the antidotes, I just want to end by saying that you don't need to be a trained scientist to see the world scientifically. All you need is patience and a desire to observe reality clearly, to try to put aside the biases and all the baggage that we have and just observe reality clearly, right? This is not at all the purview of the elite. This opportunity is open to all of us. So let's just look at some basic math here, right? The, the basic math that feeding plants to animals and then eating animals is inefficient, right? You lose about 90% of the energy uh, when you take plants and feed them to animals and then eat the animals. So you can feed 10 times as many people with a plant-based diet versus an animal-based diet. Basic math. All you need to do is just observe reality, see the way food systems work, and then, of course, you get the ethical benefit of not caging and torturing and slaughtering animals, right? Basic math also shows that if you feed humans anger and fear, you yield chaos, disorder, and violence, right? This is just basic mathematical scientific concepts. Take any human, pump them full of numbers of violent images and fear and anger and division and racism and greed, just feed them with those images, and of course you're going to produce those type of people, right? And this is the diet of the average right-winger, right? The average right-winger feeds on violence and chaos and division, and think about the average liberal, right? The average liberal is, is, is feasting on a diet of more cooperation and progress and knowledge and understanding. I'm not trying to say that liberals are perfect and right-wingers are you know, are inherently more morally inferior. It's just a product of the inputs, right? It's just basic science. If you want a peaceful world, if you want a cooperative world, you have to use the building blocks that, that will that lead to that. There is just truth and objective reality that you just have to look at and stare. It's staring you right in the face. Because we have been literally handed this bountiful world, right? I don't know you know, whether we deserve it or not, but it's here. We can either build a prosperous, healthy society or we can destroy, you know, hu human civilization and evolution will then, you know, take a new course and create new life forms, right? This is literally our, up to us. And again, the planet is ultimately indifferent to what we do. The planet will exist for a long, long time, even after we're gone. So it's not, none of this is about saving the planet. We're just one strand of evolution, and there are infinite numbers of perturbations that await if we um, decide to mess up you know, our opportunity. So we can choose how we evolve and what differentiates us from you know, the, the, the other animals that we share this, this planet with. And so that's kind of my final thought here before the antidotes, right, is that we have the opportunity to see reality clearly and to then choose our path forward. That is a very unique power that we have at our disposal. And I will make the argument again that if you think about this from a scientific point of view, liberalism is clearly superior, right? Diversity, openness, creativity, cooperation, sharing, compassion, empathy. Those traits are going to produce a better world. They have to. It's like it's as simple as two plus two equals four. It is just basic building block foundational knowledge. So after the break, I will come back with some antidotes.
in this world to live up to your expectations. Neither are you here to live up to mine. Yeah. I don't owe no one, no obligation. No one owe me none, so everything is fine. Fine. I said I am that I am. I am. Okay, so to end today's episode, the antidotes are pretty straightforward here, and that is you as a human being have incredible power and insight. We are alone in being able to know where we came from and to understand the forces that shape us. This gives us tremendous power, and my suggestion to you is simple, to use it. Cut through the fog of propaganda and Orwellian insanity that engulfs our society, just cut through the noise and see reality for what it is, right? And then use that knowledge to build the reality that you want. Reject the status quo and the constraints that society tries to put on you, right? Most of those who currently wield the most power in society derive that power through oppression and injustice over many centuries. They do not have a strong moral foundation to stand on, nor objective scientific reality to stand on. So use your power to build a new reality. You have much more power than you realize if you choose to wield it. So with that, everybody, I hope you have a great rest of the week. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and Stitcher. And share it with your family, friends, and colleagues. So with that, have a great one and take care.